And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when a columnist asks a great question. Has the GOP changed beyond recognition and permanently gotten rid of the idea of mourning in America and uh, decided to take on a much darker view of American carnage? And by the way, is this a way to win elections? Does populism... The idea that the a nation includes a lot of good, hardworking, ordinary, solid citizens, patriotic people, family people who are being oppressed by effete elites. Is that the situation that we have? Is that a formula for victory? Uh, we will get into that with somebody who speaks, I think, with tremendous clarity and force. Uh, particularly for the majority of people in the country, and it still is a majority, who see themselves as religious, traditional. And uh, David French is his name. We'll be speaking to David French, who's also, by the way, a decorated veteran of Iraq, uh, the Iraq conflict, and a, a brilliant attorney. We'll be talking to him about what we need to do to prevent the long-term erosion of America's religious majority. Uh, we will get to that. But first off, there's a piece in the Washington Post by Susan Lynn. And Dr. Lynn is a psychologist. She's a research associate at Boston's Children's Hospital. And she lectures on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She is the author most recently of Who's Raising the Kids? Uh, big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. And uh, she begins with something that uh, anybody who spends time around uh, toddlers, and we, we've been spending a great deal of time around toddlers recently with uh, our grandchildren, but... Uh, she writes, we know a great deal about what babies and toddlers need to thrive. Food, shelter, safety, love, and yes, medical care. In addition to those basics, they also require and actively seek repeated, positive, real-life interaction with their caregivers, fulfilling an inborn need for relationships that our increasingly online world threatens to disrupt. Smartphones, tablets, and other digital distractions draw the attention of babies and caregivers away from one another to whatever beckons from a screen. It's hopeful news that government officials, she writes, are calling for regulations on tech companies marketing to children and adolescents. But the public discourse often leaves out products aimed at babies and toddlers despite a growing body of research demonstrating that for children younger than two, hours of screen time can harm their physical, social, emotional, and cognitive development. It's not, she says, that infants are posting on Instagram. They're not. But they're not exempt from the lure of new technologies, including social media. Tech aimed at babies abounds on TikTok and YouTube. Videos attracting millions of views market themselves as a godsend to stressed parents. Some promise 
to make babies stop crying. Others claim to soothe colicky infants. Yet evidence suggests that routinely using devices to soothe young children deprives them of opportunities to rely on caregivers for comfort, opportunities crucial to developing their own resources to soothe themselves. Other offerings make patently false claims that they teach babies to talk or boost babies' learning while parents get some time back. Yet we now know that babies can't learn language from machines, which is a crucial insight. They learn to speak in relationships to fellow humans who love and nurture them. In fact, for infants and toddlers, more time with screens of all kinds is associated with delayed language development. The World Health Organization, uh, yes, that's the UN, but all the pediatric associations worldwide recommend avoiding screen time for babies and toddlers. Yet in the United States, almost half of children under age two have daily screen time. And about one-third spend more than an hour every day with those devices. 11% spend more than two hours per day with screens. And of these, 7% spend more than four hours. Moreover, studies have shown that the more time children spend with screens as babies, the more time they're likely to spend with devices when they're older. Clearly, accurate information about babies and screens is not getting through. But there are several ways to combat this, so writes Susan Lynn. She says, first, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Department of Health and Human Services should invest in a public health campaign to alert parents of infants and toddlers to the lack of educational benefits from tech and media and to the potential harm of their reputed use. Now, this brings us back to that story I was talking to you about, about uh, is the Biden administration making a war against beer? Uh, no, they're not, but it does make sense that the United States Department of Agriculture, which is concerned with public health, should at least get information out there about the recommended limits of healthy drinking. And there is such a thing as healthy drinking, but uh, not, not in high quantities. And that's what they're talking about here, about a campaign to alerting parents about screen time. It's not making it illegal. It's just telling them what works with kids. Second, government should hold companies promoting media for babies accountable for false and deceptive marketing, just as legislators are seeking to prevent social media companies from marketing unfairly to teens. Regulatory agencies can require that educational claims about apps and games and for young children be supported by independent research. Fines for app and media companies' noncompliance should be substantial enough to prevent false advertising about their products' educational benefits. Uh, finally, the people most likely to interact directly with babies and their parents should be enlisted to help. Child care providers, educators, community organizers, health professionals can support parents in efforts to avoid screens and offer them real-world strategies for stimulating and soothing infants and toddlers. Pediatricians are obvious messengers. 
but helping parents resist industry efforts to hook babies on screens needs to begin before birth with obstetricians and midwives. And then she concludes, babies need people, not devices. They need to be cuddled. They need to be talked to, played with, and read to by the adults who love them. For evidence of this, you need look no further than the face of any weeks-old baby staring up at you, looking to make eye contact, to connect. Uh, it's an important message, and uh, we will post this uh, piece from the Washington Post uh, at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, coming up, uh, David French has written an extraordinary column that I think everybody should uh, should read and pay attention to. Uh, David uh, French spent most of his career as a practicing lawyer working in both commercial and constitutional litigation. He joined the United States Army Reserve as a judge advocate general and deployed to Iraq and served in Diyala province. Uh, his piece on political Christianity is fascinating and important. We will discuss it coming up with David French. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. I really enjoy your program. I listen to talk radio all day. You're definitely right up there, the cream of the crop. This is The Michael Medved Show. Show. It is always a pleasure to welcome back my friend David French. Uh, David uh, is a columnist, nationally syndicated. Uh, his uh, columns appear in the New York Times. He is a prolific author. Uh, he is most of all a distinguished constitutional attorney and a decorated uh, veteran of the United States Army Reserve. Uh, where he deployed to Iraq in 2007 and where he was awarded a Bronze Star. Uh, during his legal career, he litigated in federal courts from coast to coast and served as a lecturer at Cornell Law School. And he is a former president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Uh, most importantly for this conversation, he wrote a stunningly enlightening uh, column uh, under the heading, Political Christianity Has Claws. And you began in that piece uh, talking about a horrifying story that we had covered on the air where a, a young man, 27 years old, ended up shooting a shopkeeper uh, because he got into an argument with her about her display of a rainbow flag. And it turns out that the young man justified his point of view with a, a lot of political and uh, purportedly religiously political uh, conservative Christian ideology uh, that he left behind on his Internet. What did he get wrong profoundly and fundamentally that actually led him to murder and he was later uh, killed in a confrontation with police officers. What led to that? Yeah, you know, this is this is uh, when I looked at his Twitter feed. What I saw was something that was only slightly different and more intense than a lot of the Christian Twitter feeds that I see. And what you would see is sometimes a really nice 
comment about how Jesus, for example, stands with the brokenhearted, followed by vicious rhetoric about political opponents, in this case mainly focused around LGBT political opponents. And it really, what I saw was a lot of sort of, a, a lot of sort of statements of Christian belief, but I did not see Christian virtue. And what it triggered for me was this really interesting exchange uh, or this really interesting discussion in the book of Galatians in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul is talking about how do you, what are the, that the flesh, in other words, our sinful desires are at war with the spirit, in other words, the spirit of God. And so what is it that marks the flesh? And yeah, he condemns sexual immorality, so Christians are right to uphold traditional sexual moral ethics. But here are some other parts of the flesh, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dissensions, factions, envy. All of that's the flesh. Yeah, and Jay, well, I, read, I read that list uh, on the air, and I said, sounds like American politics right now, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It does. But then what is this what are the fruit of this what is the fruit of the spirit? It was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. So in other words, how do we identify who is somebody who's where who is following who is, you know, on the right path? You identify them by their virtues, not by the fact that they have the right set list of beliefs, but their virtues. It's not that beliefs don't matter. But good beliefs should produce these virtues, and if the virtues are not present, that is a red flag. And I think that, that is, that's something I really wanted to highlight. As much as I think it's important that Christians should participate in American politics, you have to do it with a spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and not in a spirit of hatred, strife, jealousy, anger, ambition, dissension, and faction. You know what's interesting is is how similarity uh, uh, much of the teaching that that you were doing in the column is to traditional Jewish teaching, uh, where we we believe there are only two qualities uh, that uh, you shouldn't have at all that should be totally alien to your nature that uh, actually spoil something. It's like, and it, it, the equivalent is. If you have some non-kosher substance in a kosher soup, if it's just a little bit, you can go ahead and eat the soup, but not if it involves anger or arrogance. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. anger and arrogance you have to stay away from, and this sounds very much like the book of Galatians uh, that you cite in your column. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting, given human nature, I think you know, the wisdom in in Paul's formulation becomes obvious, because if you have um, arguments about religion, the stakes of religious argument are very, very high. So, you know, eternal stakes when you're talking about religious arguments. And if that argument is not tempered by virtues like humility or kindness, it can get violent fast. How do we know that? Because we have millennia of human history that tells us that religious, that religious ideas unaccompanied by religious virtue equals religious violence. 
And that's one of the things that I'm very concerned and alarmed about for the future of our country is if you have if you hold beliefs with religious intensity, but you don't possess religious virtues, that equals religious violence. Uh, did you see this uh, story uh, recently, David? Uh, and and it's from uh, Spokane, Washington, about a uh, preacher, uh, uh, a televangelist and musician who uh, actually gave a speech in the midst of the wildfires uh, praying for Jesus to fire, uh, for a Jesus fire to consume Spokane. At one point, uh, Foyt uh, told the crowd, we don't care about the smoke. Let's pray for a fire that would consume Spokane and sweep our city like a fire sweeps through the woods. Um, that that kind of um, <laughs> that 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 kind of politically motivated expression of Christianity is exactly what you're warning against, as I understand it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I used to look back at pre at you know I used to look back at Christian history and the wars of religion, say in the 17th century, or look over at some of the religious wars that were um, tearing apart, say, Iraq, where I served, and and say, well, thank goodness we're through that. Like, thank goodness that doesn't apply to us, right? That we've learned, we've grown. But what we've seen is that as politics becomes more and more and more important to people, as politics becomes like a religion, as Christianity becomes filtered through politics and drained of these virtues like kindness, you see the logic of religious war emerging. And I never thought I would see it in this country in my lifetime. Now, you write about it in your new book, which is called Divided We Fall. We'll talk about that and more with the one and only David French. His column that we're talking about is posted at our website at Michael Medley. Michael Medved show. We spoke yesterday uh, to uh, another uh, columnist, Nick Kristoff, who was looking at some of the data from Pew Research Center, uh, which suggested that um, that the Christian majority that has always been a factor in American life from the very beginning until the present day um, may be gone because of the increase of people who have no religious orientation. It may be gone as early as the 2030s, so within six or seven years, which is a stunning thought. And uh, one of the things about paying attention to what David French has to say, including in his most recent book, which is called Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, one of the things to talk about is how you avoid that and the role that faith can play in keeping us together. Uh, David, what, what's the the main priority to uh, take us away from this brink of divided we fall, of the kind of ses- secession, the new civil war, the talk yeah. of assassinations, uh, all of this this darkness that seems to be engulfing us. Yeah, you know, I talk about in the book a combination of two things. One, 
we can't just look to the government and say, here's my five-point plan for easing, uh, for easing polarization. People have to want to ease polarization before we're going to ease it. And so there has to be a heart change. And then after the heart change, there can be some policy changes. And the heart change really has to deal with the problem of animosity. Um, if you look at the fundamental reality of American politics right now is the two, the committed activists on both sides of the spectrum hate each other, hate each other. And so when you have that level of hatred, it is extremely difficult to have any kind of public policy solution because people want to wield public policy as a weapon. Uh, against their enemies. And so the first thing that, and I, you know, one of the things I call on the Christian community to do is to be the instrument of cutting through that hatred. Because, you know, the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, says, what does the Lord require of you, O man, what is good? And it says to act justly. So yes, we should pursue justice in the public square. You can't just step away from politics. But then it goes on to say, and to love kindness and to walk humbly. It is very difficult to have secession, civil war, et cetera, when you're pursuing justice with kindness and with humility. And so part of the book is a call to return to these values. And then once we've returned to these values, at least to some degree, how can we stop from getting back at each other's throats again? And that's where I call for more decentralization so that what happens in San Francisco is less relevant to us in Tennessee or what happens in Tennessee is less relevant to San Francisco. and But it has to be really both. It cannot just be one, because one, one thing that we've seen, for example, here in Tennessee, is a lot of people are getting involved in local politics, but it's to fight national culture wars. Like we have a high degree of energy in Middle Tennessee against for combating critical race theory. But critical race theory is not a part of our schools in Middle Tennessee. So everyone's spun up about something here that isn't a factor here. And and so that's what I mean by fighting national cultural wars in local in you know in local offices. Uh, if we're focusing on local issues and local offices, I think we're gonna be a lot healthier. I have been um, actually transfixed recently by the word rejuvenation because the Latin basis means to be, to make young again. And uh, clearly, we could use rejuvenation in a lot of American congregations of every denomination. How, how do we do that for people who are religious believers? How do you rejuvenate uh, congregations that are closing, literally by the hundreds, if not yeah. the thousands every year, and uh, to make religion appealing and relevant and young to people today? Well, you know, I think one thing, if you, if you look back at the biblical model of renewal, and, and, and the biblical models always begin with repentance. And, and, you know, if you talk about like when Josiah discovering the book of the law and how people, when they determined that they how much in violation sort of of God's laws they've been living. They, you know, like they tore their clothes in mourning, right? That you have, you have situations where time and again in scripture, the prelude to renewal is repentance. Um, and, and, you know, one of the problems that we have in the church right now is people see repentance or even the word saying, I'm sorry, as a sign of weakness. And they argue that what is 
the times require right now is strength and power. But the reality is in the, in the upside-down kingdom of God, actually renew as repentance is the path to renewal, not dominance, not victory. And so I do believe that there has to be a real commitment to repentance as the foundation of renewal. And uh, practically, what does that mean for that intersection of uh, political faith, and political commitment and religious faith? It's a, sort of a, a, a point of meeting that you've spent a lot of your career exploring yeah. and, and refining. Well, you know, there's a lot of, you know, so if you're talking about, you know, one of the reasons for the decline of church attendance is the way the church has tolerated, for example, abusive figures and has tolerated corruption. So there's got to be repentance for corruption. In the political arena, I think there has to be repentance for cruelty and for hypocrisy. So it's one thing to sort of say, okay, look, if I look at a choice between Clinton and, and Trump or between Biden and Trump, and I don't, I don't uh, you know, really like either one, but I'm going to go with the one who might, might advance the policies that I like more. Okay, I get that. That's understandable. But to then sort of relish in the cruelty, for example, that your political champion inflicts on others or uh, exhibiting double standards, for example, where you hold your political opponents to a a standard of character that you don't uphold your your political allies and and repenting for those double standards, repenting for cruelty, I think can make a profound spiritual difference. And um, it's not something that sort of you know, I, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, but in far-right circles, you'll see online, they have this never-apologize ethos. And it's really hard to think of something more contrary to sort of the spirit that, uh, you know, the spirit of Christianity and the spirit of being a follower of God in this is sort of to have so much pride that you never apologize. That's an or never, never surrender, which is sort of the slogan of the moment. Uh, especially given that uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you're supposed to surrender part of yourself to God. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this is a ethos of the last shall be first, right? And um, to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you. And if the mindset is, I will dominate my enemies. I will crush my enemies, sort of the Conan the Barbarian view, (laughs) which, you know, I mean, it can be funny to joke about stuff like that. But if you're talking about inculcating an ethos of domination, you're really, that is not a biblical ethos. And so I think that there really does need to be repentance as a prelude to renewal. That's a very uh, appropriate uh, uh, for the Jewish calendar right now because we're coming up to Rosh Hashanah and uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, So uh, I appreciate uh, your relevance in that regard, David French. Uh, His book, uh, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, that's uh, posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, so much appreciate your work, David, and I hope you and your family have an absolutely wonderful weekend. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking uh, a little bit about throwing enemies into jail. <laughs> and, and more... 
And Labor Day is coming up. And Labor Day weekend. And you can enrich your holiday or any time by taking advantage of a very special half-price-off-everything sale uh, concerning talks uh, that I have given over the years that are available from the Medved History Store. Uh, They're about history, about politics, about popular culture, uh, and more. Uh, Check it out at michaelmedved.com or go to the Michael Medved History Store 50% off as part of a Labor Day sale. Um, Meanwhile, we were speaking earlier about a uh, column uh, that appeared over at MSN that said that America's in much better shape than you probably think. And talking about why, well, people look around and they will grab statistics and grab indications that show that uh, we are suffering, uh, that everything is going wrong, that things are moving in the wrong direction. And there was a piece that appeared in, of all places, the New York Times, that uh, counteracted that, I thought, very effectively. They write that the federal minimum wage, you know what the federal minimum wage is? It's seven twenty-five an hour which is really shockingly low. And it hasn't changed since uh, 2009, a record streak of stagnation. But that fact, writes the Times, is starting to feel irrelevant. How many people actually earn minimum wage? Fewer than one out of every 1,000 hourly workers earn the federal minimum wage in the first seven months of this year. 30 states have set higher standards and many employers can't compete for workers with that rate in a hot labor market anyway. Even labor activists and politicians who campaigned tirelessly to raise the federal minimum wage have moved on from the fight to raise the bar. Isn't that extraordinary? The market itself, which is uh, full of job possibilities and hungry for more laborers, more workers, uh, that the market is actually working. And even the New York Times seemed to notice. Uh, Meanwhile, there is more about uh, the the idea of uh, Americans wanting to criminalize everything. And uh, The Hill has a piece under the headline, uh, Trump tells Glenn Beck he'd lock up political opponents if re-elected. And uh, D- Dominic Mastrangelo writes in The Hill, former President Uh, Donald Trump told conservative media personality Glenn Beck he would prosecute his political enemies if he's elected president again. Is this just turnabout as fair play? They certainly have prosecuted President Trump. Uh, Glenn Beck asked Trump, he said, uh, you said in 2016, you know, lock her up. That was 
President Trump, uh, the slogan that he used against Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton in 2016. And uh, then when you became president, said Glenn Beck, you said, we don't do that in America. That's just not the right thing to do. But that's what they're doing, Glenn Beck said, asking the former president, do you regret not locking her up? And if you're president again, will you lock people up? I mean, first of all, it, it's unclear what exactly you would lock Hillary Clinton up for. I mean, you might find her a loathsome politician. Uh, many, many people do. But uh, uh, asking President Trump, if you're president again, will you lock people up? Uh, Trump um, said immediately, well, there's no choice. Meaning, well, I'll give you an example. The answer is you have no choice because they're doing it to us, Trump said, adding that he never hit Biden as hard as I could have when I was president before. I always had such a great respect for the office of the president and the presidency, and then I heard he was trying to indict me, and it was him that was doing it. The former president, who is a current frontrunner for the GOP nomination, in 2024 has been indicted four times this year in connection with his personal business dealings, handling of classified documents, and efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. And a sad story uh, about a 16-year-old girl who allegedly stabbed another teenage girl and killed her. This was in Washington, D.C., early Sunday morning when there are a lot of people in church. Uh, the stabbing occurred in a McDonald's in an argument over McDonald's sauces. I don't know, really. It's a shame. And um, uh, Alberto Gonzalez we were talking before about locking people up as part of the political process. Alberto Gonzalez was attorney general under President George W. Bush. And he was asked about the Justice Department and whether it has been totally politicized or will end up being totally politicized if President Trump want, wins. And here is what he had to say. Listen question this notion that the department has become politicized simply because it's prosecuting Donald Trump, but because he's the leading front runner for the Republican nomination. And I've tried to emphasize, remind people or tell people that uh, in my judgment, even if he weren't running for president, he would be investigated and, and be prosecuted uh, for the things that uh, he's being accused of, of committing. So from my perspective, this is not a political witch hunt. The department is doing what it what it uh, should be doing, which is to investigate possible criminal wrongdoing and to prosecute that criminal wrongdoing when they believe that they can successfully do so in federal court. No one, in other words, is above the law. But uh, there are some superheroes who are above normal mortal abilities. Uh, featured included uh, those in the new movie, The Flash. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. 
Ezra Miller plays a slightly nerdy superhero with such astonishing speed that he can go back in time to change things. And fortunately, he gets help from other standards in the DC comic book universe who make crucial appearances in The Flash. You lost both parents in one day. I went back in time to save my parents. But instead, I completely broke the universe. Well, fortunately, Batman, played by Ben Affleck and Michael Keaton at different points in time, is on hand to help fix things and to help clarify an astonishingly complicated plot. The action sequences are often dazzling. There's a great deal of welcome humor, and the process of sorting through the confusion over the course of two and a half hours gives you some sympathy for these well-beloved characters. Rated PG-13 for comic book violence, two and a half stars for The Flash, which is serviceable rather than splendid. And we have a splendid show uh, lined up for tomorrow. Uh, there's a new media narrative that says the GOP has once and for all ditched Reaganism and mourning in America and embraced instead a new populist idea of American carnage. But is that true of Republicans? Is that true of the Republican Party nationwide? Uh, we will get to that. Uh, we will also be talking with Russell Moore, a longtime official and a leader of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention about why Americans are losing their religious faith and how to regain it. And Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal, one of America's leading black conservatives, will be talking about how Joe Biden misuses Martin Luther King Jr. for partisan points 60 years after the March on Washington. What have blacks actually done for themselves? And David Frum has taken a position opposed to those people who would use the 14th Amendment to try to take President Trump's names off of any ballots for the presidency. And I think David Frum is right about that. I think the 14th Amendment scheme to take a name off the ballot is not a good idea. Uh, we will speak with David from tomorrow, plus Trump's 49 new Truth Social videos will